Hello, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a cult film podcast. Uh, I am Andy Bowell. And I'm Stephanie Johnson. And we are uh, dipping our our toes into the water of the giant cesspool that is film podcasts. We are adding our drop. Yes, we are adding our drop to the bucket. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are so many already, but there's none with our voices on it. Exactly. You know, and I think that's actually part of the, that like, it's okay. Like, yes, there are other cult film shows, but this art form is inherently original because there's no other cult film shows that we have been on and talked through. That's true. And I think we are solely qualified to talk about cult fiction. You with your background in film and movies and acting and me with my background in acting and literature. So between the two of us, hopefully this will be entertaining. Who knows? I think so. You're right. We, 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 we are a couple of very storied individuals. That's a very nice way to put it. Andy. <laughs> I like that. All right. Um, and so we will continue to figure this out as we go along, but for now, um, our inaugural film is Coraline, a 2009 animated film by studio Leica. It's directed by Henry Selleck and stars Dakota Fanning, Terry Hatcher, John Hodgman. And this film is interesting to me because it's a stop motion picture. And it's actually the Mm -hmm. first stop motion picture developed by Studio Leica, who um, have also come out with Paranorman, The Box Trolls, and Kubo and the Two Strings. And have pretty much solidified themselves as the best stop motion picture studio period like these guys kill the game mm-hmm. and Coraline was their inaugural work that's so cool I think it's so fitting that it's their inaugural work and our inaugural movie yeah exactly it fits <laughs> we uh, we had intentionality behind this sure sure it wasn't that it was October and I was like okay I need to listen to a movie that I've already listened to a thousand times before <laughs> it's not that well it also works because it's kind of a it's a spooky movie it's spooky but it's not so spooky that Little weenie me can't watch it. <laughs> like some of the films that will absolutely be on this podcast. <laughs> uh huh. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna try. And I've pre warned my my partner that we might have to sleep with the lights on for some nights. It's okay. Hey, I love a good nightlight. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, like I get I get total like night terrors, and like I'm not ashamed to admit that like I'm not like debilitatingly scared of the dark. But I I can't have any open doors in my bedroom. Like the- I'm the same way. Yes. I'm the same way. And it's gotten to the point where, like, I can sometimes sleep with the door cracked. But especially if I'm, like, in a hotel or a new place, I'm like, no, the door absolutely needs to be closed. Right. No. The, the, like, and and it's, yeah. my, it's my room. It's my apartment. I live here. But no. Closet door gets closed. <laughs> bathroom door gets closed. Door to the living room gets closed. Were you the friend who identified with me in the fact that you jump into your bed so that the monsters can't grab your ankles? I don't. I feel like I had a discussion with someone so. about this. I mean, okay. I I was the guy who, when it's three in the morning and I'm the last one up, back uh, when I lived in my parents' house and I'm turning off all the lights, I would absolutely run from the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very fitting that our movie is one that's so dark and so spooky that even as an adult, I'm like, oh no, there are terrifying moments in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, let's get into Coraline. Coraline, 
Um, just to yes. kind of start out, uh, what we what we want to do in the show is go through the movie uh, beat by beat and and talk through it and talk through what we liked about it, talk through what resonated from us. Um, and to you, dear theoretical listener, you can of course follow along with the movie, watch it ahead of time. But what we'd kind of like to do is make it so that you don't necessarily need to see every movie we're talking about to get the enjoyment that we're getting from it. Mm -hmm. So Coraline opens up in with a family moving from Michigan to Oregon to the pink palace apartments. Uh, and this is mm -hmm. the Jones family, the parents and our protagonist Coraline Jones. And they move from Michigan to Oregon because, and I want to talk about this, her parents think their careers will be easier in Oregon. Their careers <laughs> yeah. as garden catalog writers. Right. <laughs> Specifically. Which, so, <laughs> both Alex, my husband, and I um, are writers, and we both have semi-quasi-careers in writing. And we're like, how how is this sustainable? Even in the <laughs> early 2000s, when this movie's, you know set guarding by um Coraline's mom's cell phone she has a flip phone I'm like okay so it's roughly in the early 2000s oh, good even catch. then how do you make a career in this <laughs> <laughs> right and like I could understand one parent but they're a both team of them. they're they're yes. both doing this hyper specific writing work and I mean clearly it's not like they're doing amazingly well they are they're moving into an apartment complex but like, even that feels a little decadent for their lifestyle. I know. They're moving into this divided 200-year-old house in Oregon. That feels very rich. Anyway, so they move. Right. And pretty instantly, Coraline runs into this neighborhood boy named Wybie, short for Wyborn. Who she is such an instant bitch to. Like... <laughs> Like, within five seconds of meeting the kid, she she points out the fairly obvious way to tease him for his name, saying, why were you born? Uh, I didn't hear anything. Oh, I definitely heard someone. Why were you born? Like... Kids are brutal. Let me tell you, kids are the worst. Oh, kids are so the worst. And, like, this... this So, this is literally within, like, two minutes of meeting Coraline. This is in the first five to ten minutes of the movie. And it establishes so much about Coraline that I really do mm -hmm. love. Like... Like, uh, what she does is, you know, she walks right out her back door, grabs a branch to use as a dowsing rod, and sure. and just kind of starts wandering off. And she's, like, splashing through the mud, and she's whacking uh, stuff with the stick, and she's instantly such a badass. Yeah. Um, you know, she is a tough kid. This is not a case where like the protagonist is going to be the delicate princess who learns how to actually like, like have agency in the real world. Coraline is right. so just, just such a, such, such a kid, such a relatable yeah. kid. Um, and yeah. it, it really is great, even though she's mean to Wyborn. And I really, re I really resonated with this kid because you know you go through the movie and it becomes clear that Wyborn doesn't live in the apartment complex. His grandmother doesn't let him. Mm. And as far as we know, 
there aren't any other kids. So this poor dude has just grown up alone with his grandmother with no other children to play with. He is so horribly awkward. He is so that special kind of like, well, this is just how I do it. And no one's ever told me it's weird or wrong. So I'm just going to do it freely and naturally. Yeah, <laughs> That's so sweet. But like, there's also something wrong with him. He, he rides around with a welder's mask as a bike helmet. And I'm instantly like, who does that? <laughs> and searches for banana slugs, which I guess is kind of a boyish thing. But then like, has Coraline take a photo shoot of him posing the banana slugs in a specific way which is just very weird sticking them up his nose and and having banana slugs like much 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 closer than i would ever want one near my face yes, <laughs> yes. even as a little boy yes. well i think it's so interesting that you identify with wyborn as like an awkward boy character because i so get Coraline as a snotty agency having i'm gonna go have this adventure i'm not gonna ask for permission girl who just moved because she had just moved and so i understand having had like a major move halfway through my life i'm like oh i don't know necessarily that she's i mean yeah she's absolutely rude to yb but i don't know if it's coming from a place of who she actually is or if she's just coming from a place of nothing in the world makes sense right now and you're weird and i'm gonna point it out (laughs) Um, I, I agree with that. Because I'm hurt. Yeah. Right. And so, like, she, she has this interaction with YB. Really, the first 20 minutes or so of the film is just kind of an introduction of the cast and characters. We meet Coraline. Mm-hmm. We meet YB. We see the cat, which becomes prominent later on. And we meet Coraline's parents, the aforementioned freelance gardening writers. And they instantly suck. There's I keep using the word instantly, but <gasps> there's... The worst parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, they're not interested in hanging out with her. They're not interested in the fact that they just moved her across the country and she's clearly grieving. They're just like, that's cool. Can you stop bothering me? Can you stop? We got to we gotta work on our gardening catalog, which I actually get um, why they're so like committed because clearly this thing has to be the greatest gardening catalog ever for them to have any like livelihood in life. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think they're actually the premier gardening catalog people like maybe they're the go-to gardening catalog writers that would who knows that you know headcanon established because that's the only way it makes any sense (laughs) that's the only way they live the way they live on day-old groceries and kale exactly but you know Selick and Gaiman the uh Neil Gaiman wrote the book that this is based off of and Henry Selick adapted it for television as or uh, for for film as well as um directing it and they're establishing so clearly early on that the real world is mundane and boring and no one is fun and no one is interesting her parents suck like yes there's there's no redeeming stuff and and you would even point it out stephanie how um even the look of the world it's it's oregon which is a naturally rainy damp state um but Mm -hmm. everything is so closer to like monochrome and aside from the pink palace apartments everything is gray and drab and dreary well and even the pink palace is like it's this really gray pink it becomes progressively pinker throughout the movie the more that she's dealing with the struggles 
that we'll get into shortly, but it starts out, everything is really great, and then you see Coraline in her yellow jacket and her bright blue hair, which also, okay, her parents have to be a little bit cool because they (laughs) let her daughter, or they're just that unconcerned with their daughter. Maybe it's that, because they seem relatively unconcerned with her, but they let her have bright blue hair, which I have to cheers for them. I didn't catch that. I just, I instantly was like, yeah, this is an animated uh, movie. People can have different uh, hair colors, but no, you're right. And if it was intentional, then yeah, either, either they're just completely ignoring her or at the very least they're like, okay, yeah, you can break into the hair dye, which is cool. Maybe like, okay. So I know when I moved, I told my parents like, okay, we will move, but can I have this? And I would like get away with more things than I probably would have any other time. Yeah. Maybe she's like, okay, I'm fine with us moving, but can I dye my hair blue? (laughs) (laughs) Must be. So so her dad's solution for Coraline's boredom is to have her basically explore this new living space that they're in. You know, count the windows, count the doors, see, see what all is around. And in doing so, Coraline discovers a hidden doorway, which at first, you know, she gets her mom to unlock it and it winds up that, oh, there's nothing behind the door. It's just been bricked up. But this is actually one of the most important things in the movie because... Uh, at night, after Coraline has her first day in in Oregon and goes to sleep, she finds a rat, and the, or, it, it looks like a kangaroo rat. It's it, or no, a mouse. Delightful little creature basically leads her down to the doorway, and you discover it's not boarded up anymore. It is it is a tunnel into the other world, the other magical wonderful world and Coraline being an exploratory kid she dives headfirst into it and um you know what do you what are your first impressions of the other world so like I had commented on before about the color is that it's just it's an explosion of color like suddenly she walks into this really lovely kitchen and it's so bright and there's lots of lights on and also So this was something I caught. It's kind of this world of domesticity. Like the mom is chopping vegetables and she's cooking and she's wearing an apron and all the floors are spotless and everything's set up. And it kind of made me think this is Coraline's hunger for a more established life. Sure. Where she's more, not only is she more cared for, parents follow more traditional roles as parents maybe not necessarily like gender roles but just roles as you are parents and you're supposed to take care of me and it's very clear that this other world with this other mother and this other father is more an ideal for Coraline of oh the mom makes dinner that's nice because Coraline does say in her other world or in her original world at some point mom why don't you ever cook Right, that's the thing. Dad cooks, and it's always really gross. And I, I love her answer because it's actually uh, my home dynamic with my wife Mariah. She cooks, I clean. <laughs> that's just how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's my home dynamic too. I do most of the cooking, and Alex does most of the cleaning, and I am a okay with that because he does a far better job than I ever will. Right. So. Um, but yeah, the thing about the other world in, in just about every way, when she first enters it, it is the antithesis of reality 
and it is the good antithesis. It's everything she wants. It is, you know, this amazing, wondrous, nonsensical place where all the food is delicious and she has literally everything she wants and her parents are sweet. And the only thing that's kind of weird is they have buttons for eyes, but you know. That's fine. <laughs> and I want to give Coraline credit that she is weirded out by that right. from the start. She's not like, Oh, they have buttons for eyes, but everything else is magic. She's like, oh, no, that's kind of weird. And then at one point, even on the first day, there's something that the parents say where, like, the mom says your other mother, or Coraline says, I'm going to go back to my other, other mother. And she mentioned, the other mother says something like, I'm your better mother. Right. And that kind of freaks Coraline out. And she's like, "Uh, okay. I want to establish that Coraline isn't just instantly like, oh, I like this world better. She's a little weirded out by it at first. She likes that she can have a mango milkshake for dinner, and she likes that the mom cooks and that the dad is musical. But there are still parts about it that she's weirded out by. Right. It goes back to, you know, the movie established that she's not going to be she she's not an Alice in this house in Wonderland, who's just kind of wandering around mm. and, and accepting things. Alice didn't always accept everything, but Oh, that cat is laughing at me. Oh, that's weird. Okay. But that's how the world works. No, she's, she's questioning things and she's being very inquisitive and observing. Um, I want to talk about the thing that struck me most about other world that was really interesting and this was from the story writing and the filmmaking perspective in the writing. They, they, they immediately, I'm trying to get away from instantly. Apparently they immediately establish that this is not a dream. Yes. You know, it, it operates on a dream logic in the way that things are presented to Coraline and things are just whimsically better. And she can have pretty much anything at her beck and call. And the mechanics of the world are sketchy. Don't think about them, but there's there's something that happens in the movie. I'm trying to remember if it's a line or it's 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 something where they make it very clear. This is not a dream. Even when she goes to bed in Otherworld and wakes up in uh, the regular world again, she's she's got something in her hands or something that that makes it. Oh, cle- it's the cheese. Right, the cheese that she had been eating. The cheese eating. that she leaves for the mouse, and then she come she wakes up the next day in her regular bed. And there are still cheese crumbs on the floor. Right, exactly. So it it, it establishes this is not a dream, which is so... It, it's interesting narratively to me because I guess maybe the low-hanging fruit for the audience would have been to have it be, oh, is it all a dream in Coraline's head or is it all... Is it actual magic? Is it going on? And mm-hmm. Studio Laika was like, uh, no, it's magic. And magic is very, magic is just a thing in this movie. It's not a thing everyone really seems to know about, but there are, are hints and totems and artifacts. And, and I, I just really think it's interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a very creative choice to just trust the audience to be like, yeah, no, it's, it's real. And it's more interesting yeah. if it's real and seeing where this all goes. And Gaiman does that in so many of his so many of his books like so um from neverwhere to american gods the one specific example that i'm thinking of in neverwhere is that there it's a book that neil gaiman wrote in which there's a secret society under london and the thing is it's 
it's that same toying with is it reality is it a dream is it something else but it's a reality that everyone else doesn't see because you walk right past it it's an obvious kind of reality and i think here that instead of it's an obvious reality is that it's a reality that's only really accessible to children yes so like the grandmother's sister she suffered through that and that's why the grandmother is like no ivy you can't live in the pink palace you're gonna live with me in our house over here across the hill but so children are kind of the only ones who have access to this kind of magic well right it's children but then it's also animals um you know that's uh that yeah that, that's just a, a kind of storytelling trope in the world that animals are more in tune with other energies than humans and the animals in this movie are very much in tune with magic you know, we find out that the cat, who is uh, played by Keith David and just voiced so silkily, smoothly, so wonderfully, yeah. I don't like rats at the best of times, but this one was sounding an alarm. You find out that the cat can pretty much traverse the two worlds as he pleases. Um, and one of Coraline's neighbors, Mr. Babinski, uh, you know, his mice, he, he trains mice for a, a, uh, a circus. Um, his mice are in tune with magic enough to the fact that they can talk to him apparently. Um, and, and they know what's going on with Coraline. Yeah. Do not go through the little door Coraline. Exactly. And they get your name wrong. It's Coraline, not Caroline at all. Right. I love how all the adults are so like... Uh, unobservant that they just figure that Coraline's name can't actually be Coraline. It has to be the more common Caroline. Yes. And I think that's so interesting because Coraline more and more throughout the the movie is saying that no one's listening to her. Right. And they're actually not. And they're not. They're not saying her name right. They're not. The adults aren't listening to her. And then there's one point where why be? Why were you born? After a couple of times of going back and forth to the other mother's house, YB comes over to say, look, I really need this little doll you got back. I really need the doll that I gave you. YB comes back to say, I need this. And she's like, no, you're not listening to me. And she throws her shoes at him. Right. Be like, no, I need you to listen. There's something more dangerous going on. Yeah. Into her, no one is listening. Yeah, and they're really not. It, it. We were talking back and forth in our notes about Coraline and her agency in the film, and there really mm-hmm. is no moment where she is not the hero and really the only one who has any idea what's actually going on. Right. And it's interesting because there's such a, a power to that, I think, and she owns it. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, I didn't talk about this, but I want to. I, I just thought of it now. Dakota Fanning does such an amazing job voicing this character. Like, you know, yeah, er- she has her her cute little Michigan accent. Right. The only the only part was there's one point where she's really stone faced and she says, "I have to go back." Right. And I was like, right. Ah, that was maybe a little too much. <laughs> I have to go back for them. <laughs> they're my parents and i was like that's maybe a little too much dakota right but the rest of the time it's really it's really spot on yeah um uh, a fun a fun fact i had done in my research this was going to be live action um the movie <gasps> 
and interesting yeah and and the cast was pretty much the same uh, at the very least dakota fanning and terry hatcher were both going to be in the live action version and the decision was made to make it stop motion instead and core uh, dakota fanning loved the script and the story so much that she was like okay i still i still need to voice this character like i'm still going to be in this movie hmm i love that yeah speaking of Coraline's agency i wanted to talk about how Coraline reminds me of another very spirited little girl um, in famous animation. She kind of reminded me of Chihiro from Spirited Away. Andy, have you seen that movie at all? Spirited Away. The horse movie? No, no, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. You mean the Miyazaki. Of course. Yes. I do mean the Miyazaki. Okay. I just wanted to comment on how they... There's a lot of parallels between the two main girls in both movies. Both are very stubborn girls who have just gone through a major move. Mm -hmm. Both girls have exceedingly selfish, unattentive parents. Both girls escape into another world that they desperately want to escape. Escape through the help of friends that they find along the way. Specifically a male character about their age. And both girls end the movie being very grateful for their parents and where they live currently. And both have a matriarchal antagonist. Oh, this is interesting. Yes. Huh. Isn't that fascinating? I was watching it and I had just listened to Cracked uh, podcast about Spirited Away. And I was like, oh, this is interesting, da-da-da. And then I was like, oh, no, wait. These movies are very similar and have very braided narratives about parents parenthood childhood and kind of being an agent agency of your own story taking over your own name huh so much so that in spirited away chihiro at one point is has her name taken away and she's given the name of sen and everyone keeps calling her sen but it's very important that she remembers her name just like Coraline and caroline right oh now now i'm just blown away the parallels really are they're intense, intense right? Intense and blatant and, and really interesting. Uh-huh. Good catch. Yeah, I love it. Thanks. <laughs> so going back to Coraline, um, throughout yes. the next uh, the next act of the movie really is Coraline meeting her neighbors and she keeps going back and forth between the real world during the day and the other world at night. And so she meets yes. uh, the incredibly eccentric uh, Mr. Babinski, who is this very animated looking acrobatic man who, who trains a circus of mice. Um, you know, she also meets, um, two retired actresses, uh, who live in the basement. Uh-huh, sure. Yeah. They're actresses. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these mm-hmm. are spink and forcible who, um, are just delightfully old and, uh, you know, still still remember their vanity of days gone by, but are really played up for comedy uh, and are absolutely burlesque dancers. Yes, 100 <laughs> percent. That's actually what they are. They are not actually right. Like that's not even subtextual. It's like she, at one point you see like here, here are some of the things we did. And I love it because it's King Lear, L-E-E-R. And Julius sees her. Sees her. (laughs) So this idea of burlesque Shakespeare uh, is an untapped market, I think. And I would love to see more of it. Okay. Sidebar. What is with their town and Shakespeare? Because they have a Shakespeare festival. 
that goes on in the background. Right. A kid comes down the stairs going, my kingdom for a horse. Like he's like riding down the stairs in a, on a chair. Yeah. Like I, I, I couldn't tell if it was a chair or a hobby horse. I don't know. But yeah. So the kids running around quoting uh, Richard the third mm-hmm. and, and yeah, they're, they're, they're doing like a production of Hamlet and this is all in the deep, deep background. It has no bearing on the plot. I don't, I don't have an answer. And and it's been quite a while since I've actually read the book, but I kind of doubt that it's in the fine print of the book, like it's in the fine print of the movie. It absolutely is nowhere in the book. Right. I just finished reading it a couple months ago, and I'm like, where's all of this? Right. I actually kind of want to take a moment about book to movie. Okay. If we can. Yeah. So, um... I love the book, but because I was exposed to the movie first, I actually, this is a very rare instance where I like the movie more than I like the book. Interesting. I think the book is good. It's certainly more frantic in the building. And it certainly, Coraline, if you watch it enough, has like two major plot points where it's like this half of the movie and then there's a turn and it's like, oh, the other half of the movie when she's trying to... Her parents are already back. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead of our no, synopsis here. I'll get better at that. <laughs> but her parents are already back, but she still has to kill the hand. And the book kind of follows that, but it's more played up. Mm, okay. And it, there's a longer second act. But additionally, all of the side characters and the side personality that the movie has aren't there in the book. It's kind of the driving force of, oh, there's the other mother. There's the other world, and almost instantly, the other world is a lot scarier. Yeah, in the book. Well, because like it's Wybie's not even in the book, right? No, not at all. Wybie's not in the book. Uh, the cat is. I don't think Mr. Bobinski is either. Huh. No, he is. I'm sorry, he is, but he's not nearly as big of a deal. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And speak I, enforceable aren't as big of a deal either. I I think that's sort of just the um in the act of turning a children's book into a movie, you've got to pull the, the story wider than it actually is. Um, Mm -hmm. But I agree. I do think the movie is more enjoyable because of what it adds. Yeah. You know, Coraline, the, the, the core story is still the same, but there's so much more window dressing in the movie. Um, And it's, it, it just makes for a more enjoyable experience. I think. Oh, absolutely. A horse! A horse! My kingdom for a horse! So you touched on, and this goes into the plot, really, you know, the first couple nights, uh, the other world is amazing and wonderful, and the the neighbors that she meets are so much more uh, fascinating and, and, and wonderful and like spink enforceable at one point turn back into their younger selves. Bobinski's Mm -hmm. circus is this great, wonderful deal. I was almost trying to figure out if it was like their subconscious sees manifesting in the other world. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cause it, it it kind of builds up that way until they all turn into monsters later. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Until that, But I thought it was so interesting because I, in taking my notes last night, was trying to figure out it's not shadows of each other because he is building a mouse circus and they are act, they are theatrical women, Miss Bink and Mrs. Forcible. Right. 
I almost wrote, they're not actresses, they're burlesque dancers in the real world. And then I was like, well, that's not nice because burlesque <laughs> dancers can be actresses and that's political and that's a whole thing. <laughs> yes. Um, no, it's... But I... Go on. They're different. They're like lesser versions of themselves in the real world. And right. then in the other world, they're so built up. Right. It follows the theme of the other world where everything is just better it's better Mm -hmm. it's more appealing it's this sweet saccharine amazing trap as we come to discover you know by but it's it's creeping in and by i think the third night of the four or five nights it becomes very apparent this is a trap and this the other world starts getting actually scary and this is where the movie heel turns into doing some really horrifying things i think Mm -hmm. so Coraline is finally confronted by her other mother who's been very sweet and very understanding and very oh take your time about the deal of putting buttons into her own eyes Coraline's eyes and staying in other the other world permanently and staying with this other family and that's how it's presented and it comes to a head where other mother is like okay no it's time we're doing this um and presents the buttons and wants to have Coraline sew her own eyes shut or sew her eyes shut for her right and Coraline understandably freaks out and uh, you know, escapes into, or, or she thinks she escapes into the real world by going to sleep. By going to sleep, she wakes up and finds herself stuck. Right? Yes. Yeah. She finds. She wakes up and she's still in the other mother's world, and she's like, "Wait, why am I still here?" Every other time, she had gone to bed in the other mother's world and woken up in her world. But this is not the case. No, not at all. So slowly, like, like her other mother is becoming more insect-like and scarier. Her other father is becoming, uh, basically turning into a vegetable and becoming this kind of zombified thing. Um, and so Coraline goes to sleep and tries to wake up because that's how it happened every other time. She wakes up still in other world and her thought is, okay, well, I'm just going to go back through the door. That's what it is. She tries to go through the small door and uh, other mother is waiting in the living room and has this giant insect foyer creature block the door. Oh, that's right. Right. Right, right, right. So so Coraline is basically admonished by her other mother and instead of actually doing anything, uh, other mother throws her through a mirror into this sort of dungeon area and tells her okay well Mm -hmm. you're gonna sit in this room and you're gonna think you want to live here or if you want to sew the buttons into your eyes and live with me and it's here that Coraline meets the ghosts of all the other children who have been killed by the other mother yes the reality of her situation becomes complete here the other mother is a monster who kidnaps children and promises them all these sweet wonderful things sets the trap with this wonderful creative world and then kills them and keeps them there forever Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's why yb isn't allowed to stay at the pink palace 
know, it's 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 thrown throughout the movie in the background. Like there's there's a painting of a little boy who's really really like the painting's really old. You see the little boy there. You find out uh, YB's grandmother's sister is there. There's this other girl, and the other girl is the scariest thing to me. This chick is like she's she's got like this scream, this permanent terrified scream and that's just her face now <laughs> and that's one of the things that yes. I like isn't that horrifying yeah, I zoned in and I was like that's one of the scariest things about this movie is that face and the uh, mental handshake that comes along with this face that something had to terrify this girl so much that she like she died with a scream on her face yeah um, so the other mother is revealed to be a creature called the Beldam and the Beldam yes is such an awesome concept like it's it's terrifying and it's so much better than if you just called her a witch right because it's a specific witch so i did research because i was like neil gaiman doesn't doesn't toss dice lately right so i did research the bell dam is a spider-like creature that has button eyes and sewing nail fingers blah 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 from the mythical creatures guide it says that the Beldam will eat children and lure them into a trap. While the main form of the creature is the spider-like creature as seen in Coraline, it can adopt a new form to deceive children into following it. It usually nests in deep forests, but will stalk the edges of forests to lure in the prey. Right. Typically, the Beldam has been known to have a sick compulsion to care for the children it captures. And then also in Romanian mythology... The Beldam is actually the spirit of the forest who lives in a very old and ugly woman's body. Sometimes she has the ability to change her shape. She lives in a dark, dreadful, hidden house. But then also it's said in Romanian folklore that the Beldam has a daughter called Fata Puduri Mm -hmm. who attracts young people in the forest where she kills and eats them. She also, much like the Beldam, has two appearances. For the first time when she appears to them, like much like the other mother to the first time she appears to Coraline, she's a young, right. beautiful woman. Yep. But then after the victim is captured, the Fata Paduri transforms into a hideous and tremendous monster, kills the young, and eats their heart. Yeah. So that she can keep their youthful appearance. Yeah. Yeah, my one of my favorite Neil Gaiman properties is the Sandman comic series, and that is full of creatures like this it's like it's like a deep cut into mythology (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and the beldam is the same thing yeah and he's so good at doing this like taking really ancient creatures that we don't necessarily think about in everyday society and saying oh no that could still be terrifying here let me show you Right, right, and and the Beldam, <laughs> the Beldam is so terrifying. I didn't uh, do the mythological research you did, and I just want to say, like, the idea of seeing this giant monstrous woman creature who has buttons for eyes and sewing needles for hands—that is exponentially more terrifying if she's just wandering around the woods. Oh my gosh, right? Can you imagine just walking? I hike relatively frequently, so I can't imagine just walking in the woods and then being like, oh cool, there's a woman with buttons for eyes and sewing needles for hands. Great. I'm going to run in the exact opposite direction. Well, like even, even seeing it in a house, you know, we, in Coraline, the, the habitat of this creature manifests as a house and that makes more sense to me because 
the sewing equipment is a household item. There's just something about taking this thing, this thing being the sewing needles and the sewing iconography and putting it out in the wild where it does not belong. That just sends Mm -hmm. a shiver down my spine. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it comments on like domesticity and the domesticity that Coraline craves but then we're going to turn it dark right. and then it's going to be, oh, sure, mother's cook and mother's sew and isn't this so nice? Okay, cool. Until they're sewing buttons into your eyes with their sewing needle fingers. Right. <laughs> but we need a yes if you want to stay here. So sharp you won't feel a thing. Ow! So um, Coraline is prompted by the ghosts of the children and it's explained to her that A, she can save all of their souls if she finds their eyes, which the Beldum keeps. B, and and the cat, I believe, is the one who actually tells her this part, she can get those if she challenges the Beldum through a game, which is a callback to the mythological origin of the character. You know, it's, it's, it's brought up that the whole thing with the Beldum of accepting a game and wanting a challenge, that's based in fact. That wasn't created for Coraline. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's actually saved by this character who is the other YB, who we haven't really talked about. And the only thing I want to say about him is he's so interesting because he has to be a creation of other mothers, but he's inherently good. He saves her. And it, it, yeah. it's this it, it's this thing that doesn't match up in my brain why that would be the case, but it's real interesting. Well, I think the... So agency, not just of Coraline, but agency in general is a really interesting concept in this movie. Because even the other father, at one point, he's the creation of the other mother, too. And in the final game in between between Coraline and the other mother, when Coraline is looking for the other children's lives, the other father has to try to destroy Coraline, but the whole time he's saying, I'm so sorry, I don't want to be doing this, but mother is making me right and he's pretty much controlled by like the piano and the praying mantis lawnmower thing he's being Mm -hmm. manipulated by this extension of the other mother yeah it's it it's so i don't i don't i don't get it and Mm -hmm. i like that i don't get it that there are these inherently good creatures trying to help her in the other world which we see is basically just this like this created reality all of it should be the other mother's control and domain but it's not yeah yeah i thought a really pointed line is when um the pumpkin dad says he pulled a long face and mother didn't like it right so implying about yb implying that he acted in a way that the other mother didn't prefer so she took care of him right and took him away yeah which let's let's touch on that real quick yb is an african-american character yeah and the thing that happens not to real yb but to other yb who is still by extension an african-american african-american character where he tries to do the right thing and is destroyed like like yeah. destroyed and his clothes are hung as a flag it, it yeah. sends a message well and also he's hung right which <laughs> right but then also there's something very terrifying in the fact that the only character of color is told that he talks too much and in the perfect world or the ideal world that the other mother creates why be as mute Right. So he's he can't talk because she's sewn his mouth shut. 
Right. Yeah. Removed sewn his mouth shut or removed his vocal cords or something. Yeah. 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 And so for the, the evil diabolical monster of the film to do that, it, it, I I think it sends a pretty clear uh, racial message Mm -hmm to the viewer without beating you over the head about it. Oh, absolutely. So that's a really great touch. Um, so YB, other YB is able to send Coraline back into the real world. And it's here that she discovers that her parents are missing. And this is the part where specifically the cat starts talking to her in other world and, you know, helping her in the real world. And Coraline realizes that she has to go back. She Not only does she have to go back to save the souls of the other children, she now has to go back to rescue her parents from the other mother who has somehow captured them. Mm-hmm. And I uh, I just want to say, like, like she, she spends the day looking for her parents in the real world, and then at night she builds pillow parents to go to sleep to. Pillow parents. I know. It's so heartbreaking and it's so sweet. And, and, and like, again, especially this is the third act of the film. It highlights, this is a kid. This isn't a 14 year old. This isn't a, a someone burgeoning into teenage adulthood. This is a child. And that is a very childlike thing. A child. Yeah. Right. So the film, um, comes to a head where, she goes back into the other world and she proposes to the other mother, let's play a game. Give me uh, you know, a set amount of time to find everyone's eyes and find my parents. If I do that, you let everyone go. If, if you win and I fail, I'll sew the eyes. And because other mother is a mm-hmm. mythological creature, she agrees. Cause that's how it works when you're a mythological creature proposed with a game. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, and she quickly goes through all of the sets and this is where like, this is where most of the things that were so great about other world turn monstrous and, and go back on her. You know, we talked about other father. He's, he's regretful of it, but his lawn equipment has become the monster, you know, mm-hmm. spink and forcible become this really weird, like, like taffy, like we just, just, just monster, just a monster. <laughs> Yeah, really creepy. I would argue almost like siren-esque where yeah. they've got these long teeth and Yes. Not great. That's a good way to describe it. And uh Bobinski basically turns into just a bunch of rats working a suit, which is <gasps> so like like <laughs> that, so scary. that alone is freaky. It's so much scarier to see that. Just like an empty coat, mm-hmm. like talking to you, but clearly running around doing stuff. Mm-hmm. So Coraline, uh, you know, because she is the hero, she succeeds in getting all of these things with the help, mainly with the help of the cat, because there's an instance where you think she's failed and she didn't get the third eye and the, the, the rat ran off with it. And then you find that the cat killed the rat and gave the third eye. Um, yeah. And this leads to a final confrontation, or we think a final confrontation with the Beldum, where she finally, like, she figures out her parents are trapped in a snow globe in the other world. She's able to basically trick her way into escaping. Um, And it's really interesting, because this is where I I mentioned that the Beldum is like a reality warper and controlling this environment, and it's literally falling apart. And it turns mm-hmm. into this giant spider web to match the Beldum, who has now become the spider-like creature. 
and this is the other part that to me is just utter the, the beldum is terrifying the beldum mm-hmm. is so freaky and i like that they trusted like this 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 isn't a take your 5 year old to it movie but this no. no but this this was this was a a pg you know it's an animated film this is something that you know, you were at least going to go with the family or you were going to take your older children with and it's scary. And the filmmakers trusted kids enough to scare them, which is something that a lot of modern um, kids movies don't do. So I really like that Coraline did that. Yeah. We, so we, we think she's defeated the Beldum only to find out that one of the sewing needle hands has made its way through the portal. Mm -hmm. And that leads to the actual final confrontation where Coraline is trying to, she goes to the, the town well where she first met Wybie. Um, and she is trying to get rid of the key to the other world. She's trying to lock the Beldum away and the creepy little needle hand follows her and attacks and nearly kills her there. Yeah. And Wybie almost falls in the well when he comes to help. Wybie almost falls in the well, but Wybie, this is the one moment. It's interesting with all the talk we've had about agency for Coraline and stuff. Like Wybie saves the day here. Mm hmm. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And then, like I said, it's been a while since I've read the book. I don't remember how she does this without him. <laughs> the cat. Okay. I believe. Okay. All right. So the cat helps her. Um, but yeah. yeah. So so the, the Beldum is finally defeated. The hand is smashed. The key is locked away. Um, and it ends with, you know, a, 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 a happy scene in reality and like I, I really like what they do is the clouds clear and the whole time it's been you know rainy and dreary and finally the the last scene of the film it's day and it's nice and it's bright and everyone's out playing in the garden and it's it's a really great and moment. every color is really bright right yeah right the the evil bright red tulips right the evil is destroyed and as a reward, color is brought back in. Oh, I just kind of stumbled upon uh-huh. that. I kind of mentally got myself there as I was talking it through. <laughs> like evil is the clouds have literally parted in the shape of claw hands, which is just everywhere throughout the movie. Right. Because I've seen it so many times. So I was like, okay, I know I'm looking for this. At one point, lightning strikes. It's a claw hand. At one point, you see a fabric. It's a claw hand. At one point... There is a pattern in wallpaper. It's a claw hand. Yeah. There's claw hands everywhere. But the last final scene is claw hands in the clouds parting. And then the next shot is the garden party in its day. And it's beautiful. Right. Yeah. The the mise-en-scene in this film is really wonderful. What does that mean? Um... What's the definition of mise-en-scene? It's a filmmaking term, and I can, like, describe it. Um, It's basically the idea of putting stuff in the background that matters. Uh, Mise-en-scene translates to placing on stage, and it is a use of a design aspect of uh, in theater or film, which highlights a visual theme Hmm. for something. So, So, like, 
to use Citizen Kane as an example, a movie that will not be on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, because that is not a cult film. No. Uh, Citizen Kane, the snow globe, is such an important icon in that movie. And the snow globe is in the background of like a ton of shots in Citizen Kane. Interesting. And so, yeah, the so the mise-en-scene of Coraline is the, the claw hand lightning and the painting of the little boy who was killed that's hanging in the house. And there's just all this stuff Mm. where if you're looking at the deep background, it's giving you such clues about the film. And it it, it does a phenomenal job of that. So, so yeah. So even the buttons too. Right. Buttons are throughout the film as well. Absolutely. So uh, that's our, our walkthrough of Coraline. And uh, Mm -hmm. let me say, Stephanie, do you like this movie? Oh my gosh. I watch this movie every year. Yay. Every year for Halloween. (laughs) Every year, candy corn in hand. Because I am a candy corn believer. There you go. Alex mocks me thoroughly for it. But um, yeah, I love this movie. I love the weird darkness of it. I love Coraline as such a sassy little girl. I think my favorite character is Mr. Bobinski. Yeah. (laughs) He's my favorite for sure. So, yeah. Andy, do you like this movie? I really do like this movie. It's not an annual watch for me. I think watching it for this was maybe the third time I'd seen it. But I definitely mm-hmm. enjoyed it the most this time. Yeah. And and I, I love Studio Laika. Um, my favorite of theirs uh, is Kubo and the Two Strings, which is a complete work of art, yes. in my opinion. Yes. I agree with you. Yeah. But you can see like the same care and groundwork. I love the technical stuff. I love the behind the scenes stuff. Something I didn't talk about, nothing in this movie, not the ghosts, not the, uh, not the monsters, not the candy, nothing in this movie is CGI. It is all handmade. And that's so impressive. I think that is so impressive. Yeah. So no, I really, I really like this movie. Um, I picked more up from it this time, maybe because I was, watching it with more of a purpose but i love Coraline. i think she's such a great representation of a kid i mean i'm i'm a huge neil gaiman fan so it it, it really is just an amazing movie yeah yeah is it a cult movie do you think i think it is and uh here's my reason why studio Leica has become somewhat famous for its stop motion stuff and Coraline was their inaugural work. It was their first movie. And I think that's something that adds to cult appeal is when it's the first of something. Uh, no mm-hmm. one no one remembers this as Studio Leica's first movie. Or at least when the people were watching this, no one was thinking about Studio Leica. So it's the mm-hmm. first because of that. It's also based on a book, which is one of the things that I believe is almost a shortcut into being a cult movie. If, if your film is based off right. a book, it's either cult or it's going to be like an Academy Award classic. <laughs> There's just Yeah, I was going to say it's either cult or it's Oscar bait. Right, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And also it's, it's just, it's, it's so stylized, you know, it's, it's so dripping with a style and its own voice and it makes itself so enjoyable. So people like you want to watch it annually. Yeah. And that's one of the things in reading, like reading up about what cult movies are. I kept coming across is that people repeat view people quote the dialogue. There's audience participation. And I don't know about audience participation for this movie, but I definitely know that every year when I watch it, there are some lines that I will say out louder that Alex 
will say out loud. Like the, all my new songs go oompa oompa, but the little mice just want to go toot toot is nice, but not so much amazing. <laughs> and so that's, you know, we quote the dialogue and I will occasionally out of context of Coraline just go, it's nice, but not so much amazing. Just in my general life, walking around. So, And I also think Neil Gaiman kind of lends it a little bit, just the fact that it's associated with him, it kind of lends it a little bit more of that cult flair. Because he has, I was just saying this morning to Alex that he's kind of like the Mick Jagger of the literary world, but he also kind of has this (laughs) cult feel. Well, he married a rock star. He has a three-year-old son and a newly born granddaughter. So he kind of has that like Mick Jagger sure. thing going okay. on. Okay, I dig it. I dig it. So he has like this cult era without actually being cultish himself because now, of course, he's won God almost every literary award there is to win. He's got a very strong follower base, but he also has like if you know him and you name recognition, him, you know him. But I don't right. think he's to the point where people like the same way that people are walking down the street going oh i just read the newest stephen king novel i don't think people are walking down the street saying oh i just read the newest neil gaiman novel sure and that lends itself when he goes into different medium like film and television yeah i agree with that. absolutely and he tends to examine things that a lot of cult movies do he examines the weird the strange the dark the non-ordinary he loves the dramatic fantastic theatrical and he has a strong bent towards fairy tales and the mythic. So I think just the fact that he's associated with it lends Coraline as a movie a lot more cult prodigy. I agree, totally. You know I love you. You have a very funny way of showing it. So something I'd like to do for the show whenever it is applicable, it won't always be, but uh, <laughs> Stephanie, have you ever heard of the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I play it in the shower. There you go. All right. Because <laughs> it's the one part, it's the one time of my day where I can't do anything else but like sit there and think. So, you know. <laughs> I love that. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, there's a, a theory in the world that you can take any actor from any movie and within six moves of, oh, he was in this with so-and-so and so-and-so was in this other movie with this other person. You can connect them to Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to play six degrees of Andy and Stephanie whenever we can. And, <laughs> and Coraline is actually a really easy one because I can connect myself to this movie in pretty much like one step. And that is through uh, Terry Hatcher, who is the voice of both mothers in the movie. Um, And I can connect myself to Terry Hatcher through my mother, who was grade school friends with the actress. (laughs) What? Yeah. Okay, Um, so let me get this straight. Your mom, how well does she know Terry Hatcher? Not well enough where, like, we get a Christmas card or anything. When I first found out about oh. this, I was all excited. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're friends with this person? And it, it was so So the, the thing my mom says, uh, Terry Hatcher grew up in San Jose with my mom. And they went to the same grade school. They lived on the same street. And they would walk to school together. And I guess my mom had a bad habit of, like, running Terry Hatcher off the sidewalk unintentionally. <laughs> what? <laughs> 
I've done this too to people. It's uh, it's a it's a, a Hendrix thing, I guess. Is um, it that you guys just like have inner ear problems where you don't know how to walk in a straight line? It, or yeah, it's like it's like the walking and talking. Like you get too focused oh. on what you're talking about, and all of a sudden you're doing a diagonal, and you're you're oh. you're running the other person into the grass. <laughs> Andy, remind me never to take you on a hike by a cliff because that sounds terrifying. Oh, but I love I love hikes by cliffs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, then you can walk in front. <laughs> there you go. That works. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I can connect myself to Terry Hatcher through my mom, which is a, uh, a you know a fun fact. I think that is so fun. I don't know how often I will be able to connect myself in this way, but I will say I can metaphorically connect myself with Coraline. Um, I feel like she and I are gonna. In a fictional world where she's a real human, she and I could go to a concert of heart and, you know. Oh, totally. Get our angsty teen girl dance on. So. I support it. That's how I connect. I support it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And um, so I'd like to do this every episode if we can. Um, Personally, part of my definition of a cult film is something that does not have critical acclaim. Um, Specifically, well, maybe not critical acclaim, but like critical recognition, I guess I should say. I believe that a movie that wins an Oscar cannot be cult and vice versa. Most movies that are cult never got their due recognition and never won an Oscar. Yeah. I think it's only appropriate, Stephanie, that uh, as you and I go through this and watch these movies, we uh, give these movies the Academy Awards they deserve. So without any further ado, uh, I would like to present to Coraline uh, the Academy Award for Coincidental Casting. And this is because of the actor who plays Coraline's other parent, Coraline's dad. Uh, He's played by a guy named John Hodgman, who really isn't that well-known of an actor. The most he did that people would know him from is, if you remember those old, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC commercials. (gasps) He's the PC. Yes. Hello, I'm a Mac. And I'm a PC. You know, I actually just finished a a home movie. (gasps) Wow. Right. The de- okay. So the delightfully nerdy guy voiced Coraline's father. He's not really that well known in acting, but he is podcasting royalty. John Hodgman has his own show called Judge John Hodgman, where he holds internet court and uh, judges on uh, problems for people like, oh, my uh, fiance won't stop adopting cats or my mom thinks it's okay to clip her toenails on the bus and he will litigate on these things. And it's, it's it's a delightful show, but I thought it was so funny that in the first movie we reviewed for our own podcast, there is a diamond in the podcasting rough in the cast. So I oh, that's uh, fun. So Coraline gets the Academy Award for coincidental casting from me. Well, and I will point out so that the dad, who's a gardening catalog writer, who also voiced the I'm a PC, is typing on a PC oh. in the movie. And the mom is typing on a Mac. Oh, I didn't notice that. Good catch. Yeah, the mom has got her like sleek laptop thing. And the dad has this huge hunking... Like from... Uh, yeah, it's like from the 90s. Yeah. Behemoth of a computer, so much <laughs> so that the power kind of flickers in the new house. And he's like, no, 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 no. And right. he, like, shakes the computer, and it's like this big hunking behemoth of a computer. 
So that's really funny to me. Yeah. Okay, so the Academy Award that I would give this movie is I would like to award Coraline Jones the Academy Award in teen angst <laughs> meter because her teen angst in this movie is top notch and I love it. Agreed. So, so to Coraline. Agreed. So good. good. To Coraline Jones. Basically, we gave a, a technical award and a, uh, a character award. I love it. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. For... Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, dear hypothetical listener. We aren't sure if this episode will be the first or just the first practiced episode. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I think Coraline's a great movie. I think it's more well-known than a lot of cult movies are. Uh, and so it lends mm-hmm. itself well in that way for people to uh, access it and enjoy it. Um yeah. yeah. And so um, I'm just going to go ahead and do this. I know in reality we kind of have another movie picked out, but for the sake of getting the, uh, the hang of it all, um, we have 290 cult films uh, on our docket. Uh, basically, I've got a, uh, a, a giant metal tomb, and I'm going to pull these movies out as, um, as fate dictates. So... <laughs> Hypothetically, the next movie we would review would be da, 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 da. The Machinist by Brad Anderson. Ooh. Uh, see, I actually would totally watch The Machinist. Uh, for anyone, yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> sure. Why not? All right. So, 2004's Brad Anderson film starring Christian Bale, The Machinist, uh, will be the next thing we review. So until then, I'm excited. I'm Andy Bowell. I'm Stephanie Johnson. And this has been Cult Fiction.